We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash lawless. Just go to Indeed.com slash lawless right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed com slash lawless. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Getting engaged is a moment worth cherishing. A one-of-a-kind ring that you design at Blue Nile can help your love sparkle. Just choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Finding the right engagement ring can be nerve-wracking. At Blue Nile, you'll have the expert guidance needed and a diamond guarantee that ensures you're getting the highest quality at the best price. Cherish all of life's moments and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. 20 years ago, the U.S. Women's National Team captured hearts and minds and captivated our nation as they won the World Cup on home soil. If you don't watch the women's game, that's too bad because you're depriving yourself of what can be a really interesting piece of your soccer palette. But regardless, we can all appreciate and take pride in what this group achieved in 1999 Hello, Sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking the legacy of the 99ers. We'll have our Mossy Makes the Case segment, where Mossy's going to be talking about England declining the potential Euro Super League. We'll be answering your questions in our hashtag Ask Alexi segment, including discussing the potential move and or rebrand of the Chicago Fire and so much more. But first, as always, joining me, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you? I'm back in studio with you. I missed, uh, I missed a week being on the road, but it's great to see your beautiful face once again in <laughs> studio in person. I am good. Uh, this will be our uh, final podcast before the season premiere of Game of Thrones. Uh, so that will be a big theme moving forward. Get ready for that. So Game of Thrones is uh, how many seasons in? What are we looking at here in terms of this? Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, seven? Does that sound? That's, that's the peanut gallery seems to be throwing out seven. Yeah. Uh, it's not done, though, because obviously it's, it's again, and as you know, my, my steadfast rule is I do not watch unless I can binge the entire thing from start to finish. And so when and if this uh, series ever gets done, you tell me and then I will watch it. Is it as good as people tell me it is? It is, and this is the last batch of episodes. So this is you, it. You can so start uh, binging very soon. How many uh, episodes would, it, would there normally be in a season for uh, Game of Thrones? Most seasons were 10. Ten? This Ten-ish? last uh, season's gonna be just six, right? Okay, so, so give me your favorite character of the entire thing so far. I won't, re- I won't know it, but I'm sure there's plenty of people that are very cool out there that watch it like you do that, uh, that will relate. Who is your favorite character? It would have character to be being? Joffrey and Ramsay Bolton. No, I'm kidding. I just gave you the two most hated characters in the history of the show. Um, I, I like Jamie Lannister. I've enjoyed his journey. He was somebody that was a, very much a villain early on, but now I actually find him to be one of the more reasonable figures uh, on the show. All right. Well, I look forward to watching, uh, what's it called again? 
Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones. Uh, I think I saw a billboard for that. G-O-T, right? Yeah. Call it got. Yeah, I look forward to watching that and seeing what all the hubbub is about uh, when it comes to that. Uh, and do anything interesting uh, this weekend while I was away? I know uh, we're going to talk about the classy car in, uh, in a little bit, and I know you were working that while I was uh, off doing some MLS stuff. Anything interesting? No, worked both Saturday and Sunday, a little, little Sunday afternoon hike uh, as usual. And Well, we'll talk, we'll talk a little bit more about my uh, excursion uh, to uh, D.C., but always fun seeing D.C. Uh, my, my mother showed up at the game, proud mother at D- D.C. United to uh, watch the game first and foremost, but then uh, we were broadcasting from the stands. We'll talk about that later. So My father came across your name in a crossword puzzle. He wanted me to bring it up, but I, I told him that you had already noticed on Twitter, right? Uh, I get this uh, every once in a while because with my name being Alexi Lalas, two five-letter uh, uh, words, uh, it, it is often used at different crosswords. But when it appears in the New York Times crossword, I'll be at the mini one, I've gotten texts over the last 24 hours from a lot of people that are alerting me to this fact as if it should be some sort of accomplishment. But I'll take it. Uh, it it's, uh, it's wonderful um, to be involved in any type of cultural experience, including something as epic as being in the uh, New York Times crossword puzzle. Well, they want awesome. They want awesome, and it's basically spelled in two five-letter words. So I appreciate that from the New York Times uh, going forward. So thanks for letting me no. Anything else, Mossy? That's it. All right. You ready to light this candle? Yep. Okay. As you know, each and every week we kick off the pod with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union, where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week, it goes a little something like this. This past week, there was a special reunion right here in Los Angeles. It celebrated and honored a group of women who changed the face of soccer and sports in the United States. 20 years ago, in 1999, the U.S. women's national team captured hearts and minds and captivated our nation as they won the World Cup on home soil. In doing so, the 99ers became legends, heroes, and role models to an entire generation. It was a seminal moment, and the team achieved a cultural relevancy that transcended the sport. Since then, women's soccer has continued to grow in the U.S., not without challenges and setbacks, but the women's game has undoubtedly grown and improved on and off the field. That growth is, in part, because of what the 99ers kicked off 20 years ago. Now, I don't care if it's men's, women's, or co-ed naked. As long as someone's kicking a ball, I'll watch it. But I recognize that there are some soccer fans who just don't like watching women's soccer. There are some soccer fans that are tuning out right now simply because I'm talking about women's soccer. Now, not watching women's soccer doesn't make you sexist. Just like watching women's soccer doesn't make you woke. We all have our personal preferences, and we all watch what entertains us. But if you don't watch the women's game, that's too bad, because you're depriving yourself of what can be a really interesting piece of your soccer palette. But regardless, we can all appreciate, respect, celebrate, and take pride in what this group achieved in 1999 and the legacy that they left. Our sport is better for it, and our country is better for it. The 99ers helped pave the way and the spirit of 99 informs and lives on in much of what has happened since. All right, Mossy, that's my State of the Union for this week. Not necessarily controversial, not a lot that uh, necessarily you want to take issue with, but I will ask you this question, and it's a very simple question. It's maybe not a fair question to ask you, but I'm going to ask it anyway because that's what we do here. Do you like watching women's soccer? Well, it's actually a loaded question. Uh, soccer is consumed differently in the United States and the rest of the world in terms of the club country dynamic. And I think that's really manifesting itself 
on the women's side. The U.S. has always been at the forefront of sure. women's soccer, and at the national team level still is. They won the last World Cup. They're the favorites to win this one. But I do feel like at club level they're falling behind a little bit. The NWSL is still struggling to gain traction in this country, while uh, women's leagues in other parts of the world are really growing. You saw the attendance figures recently, and that's good overall for the women's game, but it is making some people nervous in this country that the U.S. might fall behind. So to answer your original question, uh, I get into World Cups and Olympics mm-hmm. and all that. I've never watched an NWSL match. Uh, do you think for the long-term growth of the women's game in this country, there has to be more interest on at club level? There does, but just saying it doesn't make it happen. And when it comes to the domestic game, it's the same challenge that uh, the men's national team has had or watching international soccer has had in that it's one thing for a big event. And especially when there's a big event where we wrap ourselves in the red, white, and blue and we all come out and support it, whether we whether we follow the sport or whether we really care about the sport at all. There's going to be a lot of people this summer in the World Cup that just the excitement and the unique aspect of coming together as a nation to celebrate one thing that is America, and obviously it's represented through a soccer team, that draws that draws people out. But the week in and week out watching of a product when it comes to sports, that is a whole different proposition. And I do, I do believe that you, that you are right. Now, you can't just snap your fingers and have everybody love to go and watch just women's soccer in general. You can't snap your fingers and have everybody go and watch women's uh, domestic club uh, soccer. You can't snap your fingers and say uh, that all the sponsors should uh, should come. We have done very well. I think we have to be careful patting ourselves on the back too much because, as you mentioned, the rest of the world is catching up on the field, but they're also catching up off the field in the money and the resources and the attention that they are putting in to the professional game when it comes uh, when it comes to the women's side. And if we are not careful, they will not just catch us, but they will. They, the, but they will pass us. So, uh, you know, I think the the interesting thing here for me is that, you know, have you have you ever worked a women's World Cup before? Did you work the last yeah, one? Yeah, twenty fifteen. Okay, so when 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 I worked uh, two thousand fifteen, the women's World Cup, and I know there's a difference between club soccer and and the, the World Cup, but the the appreciation that you get from day in and day out being part of something like that, that is lasting. That doesn't go away after the uh, after the final. And I wish everybody were given that type of opportunity that, they ha- that I had. Because what, what you do, and I don't know if you did this, but what I did this, and I think I've talked about this before on the pod, is if you go into watching, not just the Women's World Cup, just watching women's soccer, with the idea that you're going to compare and contrast with the men's game, I think inevitably, if all you've watched is the men's game, inevitably you are going to come away unfulfilled. And you're gonna waste such precious time and energy doing that. And, and you're never going to fully appreciate what, you're, what you are seeing. Yes, it is the same game, the same laws, using a ball, there's 11 players on each side, but things that happen in the different versions of that game, it's, it's okay to recognize those, but once you get past that, then you enjoy it relative to the women's game. And that's where the real enjoyment, at least for, for, me, for me, happened. Because you can say, well, this happened in the women's game and this would never happen in the men's game. By the way, you can say this happened in the men's game and never happened in the women's game. And as I said in the State of the Union, I, like Bonnie Raitt said, I can't make you love me if you don't, okay? If, if, 
I can't snap my fingers and I can't tell you you have to like women's soccer. And I'm certainly not going to tell you that you have to watch the Women's uh, World Cup this summer or women's soccer in general because as a human being or as an American, that's what you should do. And if you don't, somehow you are sexist or somehow you are, uh, you, you're, your mind is not um, enlightened and you don't understand it. As I said before, I think, especially in America, and you mentioned this earlier and it's, it's a good point, maybe specifically in America, because we have a history and we, we have recognized and put in such time and resources in, into the women's game and women's sports in general, and at times we've even mandated it from, uh, from a law perspective, that we are so much further along. And I think we are much more accepting of women's soccer and women's sports in general. Uh, Roger Bennett did that excellent podcast, American Fiasco, which I know I keep bringing up precisely because I know it's such a painful memory for you. <laughs> uh, and he made the point at the end of it that the failure of the men's team in 1998 kind of stunted some of the momentum of soccer in this country. And then the women doing what they did a year later sort of reignited it again. Yep. Do you feel like that's true? 100%. We dropped the proverbial ball in 1998. And uh, I, I, I talk about it all the time in that while from a personal perspective, it was embarrassing and I regret doing things. More importantly, the, the biggest regret I had is that we failed to hold on to and, uh, and use that moment and that opportunity in the way that we did in 1994. In 1999, the women came along and boy, they, they milked it for all it was worth and grabbed a hold of it. And I don't think there's probably few cases in history where a sports team has used that, you know, probably, uh, hockey uh, with the with the 80 uh, Olympic team for the US men but th they used it and they in doing so as I said not just changed the sport because a lot of times we'll talk about this team in the context of soccer but they changed they changed sports and yeah we'll talk about the iconic moment with Brandy and, and, and all of that but there are there are people that know exactly where they were when that penalty kick went in. There are people that use that as a, as a flagpole and as, a, as I said, a seminal moment in their lives when things changed and the way that we thought about ourselves, the way that we looked at others in the context and through the, 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 the lens of, of sports and in this case of soccer, completely changed of what they did. And the individuals that were involved in that group, it was the, it was the perfect collection of the talent on the field, but also the personality to use that moment. So many different types of personalities. You had, you know, Mia Hamm, the reluctant superstar. Uh, you had Julie Foudy, the incredibly gregarious and social and really, really smart uh, captain. You had wonderful goalkeeping and Brianna Scurry. Obviously, Brandy Chastain having that iconic type of moment that we can use that everybody recognizes and will always recognize. But they also, I think, had a, a thread that goes through all American soccer players in a recognition of what their responsibilities were off the field and to use it to promote, not just to promote soccer and their team, but also to promote uh, women to pro uh, promote women's issues, which ultimately are everybody's issues when it comes to equality uh, and equity and all that. And that's still going on to fight for what you believe in, to fight for others and to fight as a group and to use that team mentality to further along for future generations. All of that kind of stuff came out of 1990. And it's, it's not that U.S. soccer uh, from a women's perspective didn't exist before 1990. We were already world champions before 1999, but it just came together in this absolute perfect moment and you know I, I I remember being there in in 1999 I know I, I remember where I was it it 
it was great. And as horrible as 1998 was, it was the complete opposite in 99. And so from a soccer perspective, I have to look at them and say, thank you. Thank you for pulling us in the complete opposite direction. And in doing so, resurrecting not just, not just women's soccer, but and they didn't need to re resurrect women's soccer, but, but they resurrected men's soccer, but more importantly, just they, they did so much for the betterment of soccer, the game that we all know and love. Let me ask you a weird question. Yeah. Your generation, the men's and women's players seem to get along. Uh, do you think the current U.S. men's and women's teams, there's some friction there now because of this women's battle for equitable pay and some of the comments that have been made that, hey, we win, we deserve more money, the men don't win. And so, you know, we, we, we talk about schadenfreude. Right. Uh, if the women crash out, uh, this summer, if I gave some of the men's players truth serum and asked them, do, do they get a little bit of enjoyment sure. from that? Sure. I mean, and, and that's just human nature. We, we, we get that and we understand that. And, and, and even, you know, I think that there is a pass it on type of mentality within the women's program. I mean, I mentioned the, uh, the reunion that they had. It wasn't just the 99ers. It was women's uh, players from, from all years, including uh, the current national team that was on, on site, because there is this this fraternity and this sisterhood that exists of players that have represented their country because all that they have gone through. But even within the women's program, I guarantee if you gave them that, tr that truth uh, serum, they would say, well, you have no idea how good you got it. And why are you fighting for this and, and fighting for that? That's, that's just normal. When it comes to the, to the men's team, even back in 1994, when we were coming of age, if you will, uh, there was a recognition that we would never achieve the success level when it came to the results on the field of the women's team. And the women's team will be the first to admit that they had such a terrific head start. It's not their problem, it's not their fault. They were just so far ahead of anybody else. And even to a certain extent today, what they have. Now, as we said, others have, have caught up at, at different times, but they, we knew that it, it, was, it didn't do us any good to compare and contrast when it came to the results, because we were never going to win that compare and contrast. Uh, last question for me. Uh, how much has the women's game evolved in this sense? If you took the 99 team playing the brand of soccer that they played and transported them to 2019, they played against the current team. How do you think that would look? I think it's. I think it has nothing to do necessarily with the women's game. I think it has to do with the way that soccer has evolved. I think that the analysis, sometimes the analysis, <laughs> you know, paralysis by analysis, if you will, uh, has become such a huge focal point. And the tactical understanding and it's not to say that previous generations were dumb we understood it and sometimes we even just called it different things but i think the willingness and the understanding that there is such uh, there's so much analytics and tactical implementation out there that i think the women's game and the women's team right now the data that they are exposed to the understanding the the technical uh, side of the game and the tactical side of the game is so much further along. And it's not that that generation couldn't, couldn't adapt, but I think, you, I think you see it and it manifests in different positions uh, played, different formations played, different tactical times of the game. And that's just kind of a generational thing that has changed over, uh, over the years. But I think that there's, I mean, look, we, we, uh, we're gonna talk about this uh, a little later, but the U.S. team just beat up on Belgium uh, last night, recording this on a Monday, and they scored, what, four uh, balls, uh, head, head goals, and so they were dominant in the air. That's nothing that hasn't happened in the past with Abby Wambach. Obviously, Mia Hamm and, and that generation, there was a little bit more nuance and speed, but Michelle Akers, uh, her ability in the air and her physical dominance that she had, yeah, all of that 
all of that was, I guess it's, it's not fair to call it rudimentary. It's not fair to call it pragmatic. But I think that there was just a, 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 a recognition that oftentimes we were better trained, better equipped, faster, um, at times smarter, and certainly better coached uh, on a continual basis for 99% of the teams that we came up against. And that reflected in the incredible success that we had. Now, as I, as I mentioned, and I'll, and, I'll, and I'll finish it off with this, I know that there's people right now that are on their bike or on their run or in their car or wherever you listen to this podcast that have tuned out or are hitting that forward uh, circle thing that goes 15 seconds ahead of in your uh, uh, on your podcast because they don't care or want to talk about women's soccer. We've tried to talk about it here where even if you don't care or like women's soccer, there's something that you can uh, uh, take out of it. If, If we wanted to do on this podcast or anything else, all we wanted to do was get the most clicks, get the most likes, get the most favorites, get the most you know, positive reviews, uh, reviews. All we would do every day would talk about Messi and Ronaldo. Because as everybody knows here uh, in, digital, in digital, that's what ultimately <laughs> resonates on a consistent basis in terms of the numbers. So we're, we're, we're not doing that. But I hope that as we go forward, if you don't have women's soccer in your, uh, as I said, in your palette of soccer out there, that that you try to incorporate it. And I know we only have so much bandwidth and and so much time in our lives, but um, I do think that you can be a much more well-rounded type of soccer person and that you can benefit, whether you realize it or not. Bora Milutinovic, uh, who uh, coached us many, many years ago, he always used to say you can learn something from every single game. And it wasn't just theory. He applied that oftentimes Taking, I remember going to the opposite side of the island of Iceland and watching a fourth division game. And we were like, we said, Bor, why are you doing this? Why do we get? He goes, because you can learn something from every single game that you watch. If people are kicking a ball, you can learn something. And I just think that, as I said, you're leaving something on the table there if you don't have uh, the, the women's game as part of that soccer palette. And it's a great opportunity this summer, as we said, when it comes to the, uh, the Women's World Cup to, if you haven't, had it as part of your palette to have a hell of an introduction. And I think uh, you will be better for it as a soccer fan and ultimately as a person. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Alexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part? It's all ad-free, and you can cancel it any time. So check out FoxSoccerMatchPass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy Makes the Case. All right, it's time for Mossy Makes the Case. What are you casing for this week, David? My case is that last week provided further evidence that when it comes to European football, the Premier League wags the dog. Talk is once again starting to bubble up about a Super League. UEFA have begun a consultation process to explore the idea, and folks like Real Madrid president Florentino Perez and Juventus owner Andrea Agnelli are very much in favor of it. But sensing this, the Premier League put out a statement saying all 20 of its clubs agree they want no part of a Super League and they will do everything they can to protect the integrity of the domestic game. Now, whatever you think of the merits of a Super League, the reaction was interesting. All these people that are against the idea in different countries were thanking the Premier League for putting out their statement. Everyone agrees the idea is a non-starter without English clubs, so the Premier League does have the power to stop it dead in its tracks. 
And it's not surprising that the Premier League has accumulated this sort of clout. It is far and away the most popular league in the world. It has the most juice. And it's the one league where you don't get a sense that one or two teams tower over everybody else. I know there's a lot of hand-wringing about the top heaviness of the Premier League, but there's a big difference between six and one or two. And there's a greater feeling in England that you're part of something that's worth preserving. So I suspect this will be the pattern in the coming years. The Juves, the Bayerns, the PSGs, the Barcelonas, Real Madrid are going to keep pushing because those clubs do feel like they've outgrown their domestic leagues. But nobody in England feels that way. So it's going to be the Premier League standing in the way and essentially performing a goal line stand for the status quo. Okay. So when they said they were protecting the integrity of the uh, Premier League, you could have just replaced it by saying, we're protecting the golden goose. Okay, because and as you rightfully mentioned, the other leagues and other countries, be it Italy, uh, France, Spain, uh, Germany, they need this much more. Well, I, when I say the other leagues, the other elite super clubs in those other leagues and countries and cultures, they need this a whole lot more than England does. And it's to England's credit what they have done and what they have created. It is a juggernaut. It is still not. It, it, it still has, I think, potential to grow uh, and to continue to be successful. Now, keep in mind, things can happen because the arrival and the evolution and the, the quick growth of the EPL, we know, and that migration that happened came because, well, a couple of things, obviously, incredibly deep-pocketed, at times, global ownership uh, that came into the game. The Bosman ruling, opening of European community, all that kind of stuff helped to make coaches and players look at that as a uh, as a as a destination. Things can change. All, all sorts of things can change, and you never know. While you might not want to be the one that kills the golden goose, there may be other external forces uh, external forces that do. But as you mentioned, I think it's a non-starter. I don't think you can have a European Super League and not have the English teams for what they have meant to the global game. And these brands that are not only number one, uh, and I know there's Real Madrid and Barcelona and they're, they're the, the outliers, but the amount of brands that resonate globally when we talk about making an impact, I, I just think it's, it's impossible for this Super League. Would you watch the Super League if the English teams weren't in it? I would, but it, it would you be would. strange, yeah. I mean, j just to let everybody know the, the proposal, that be, which would only come into play, by the way, in 2024, because that's when the current deal runs out. So this is the idea that's being floated out there. It would be sort of a revamped Champions League. The matches would be played on weekends, and uh, certain teams would qualify based on historical success. There'd be promotion and relegation, some sort of tiered system. And here's the key. They would switch it from eight groups of four to four groups of eight. The whole idea is these big clubs want to play more Champions League matches and less domestic matches. So if you're in a group of eight, you play seven other teams home and away. That's all of a sudden 14 group games in right. the Champions League. And so that would obviously force the domestic leagues to have to completely restructure what they do. So that's the, the Premier League argument that UEFA uh, shouldn't be able to go off and change the cha Champions League drastically in such a way that's going to force us to drastically change what we do without getting us on board first. So, that, I mean, that's the big dispute right now. Well, I mean, the fact that these games will be played on the weekend, right? Is that what you said? Correct. Let's see, so that's where the challenge comes in because any games on the weekend obviously are taking away eyeballs and potential ratings 
from other weekend uh, other weekend games. So that's where the direct conflict and challenge would 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 essentially come because you may say, well, I, I like watching Man City or Liverpool, whatever your your team is, whether it's a, a lifelong affiliation or you just came to the thing. And now if your Real Madrid is playing. I don't know, Ajax or whoever ends up being, you know, in in this thing on a weekend. At the same time, you have to you have to ultimately make a choice. All right, let, let's get down to it. Do you think this ever comes to be? Well, and if it does come to be, does it come to be with or without? Let uh, me just read the statement from the okay. Premier League first. In England, football plays an important role in our culture and everyday life. Millions of fans attend matches across the country with allegiances and local rivalries often passed down through generations. We have a fantastic combination of competitive football and committed fans that we will vigorously defend. So that's what they said. And it's funny, he throws in a line about competitive football. The backdrop here is PSG are about to clinch their sixth league on title in seven years. They would have clinched it this weekend if not for an incredible goal line clearance by Chupo Moting. Bayern, courtesy of their uh, their classicer victory, we'll talk about that in the back three, are now in the driver's seat to clinch a seventh straight Bundesliga title. Juve are about to win their eighth straight Serie A crown. So in these other countries, there is a sense that uh, something needs to give here. These leagues are becoming top-heavy. Meanwhile, in England, they've had four different champions in the last six seasons, and Liverpool, if they won it this year, would be five in the last seven. So they're sitting back saying, hey, that's your problem. We're fine. I mean, so, I mean, why, why do we have to change? Because you guys have allowed your leagues to become so top-heavy. So And they're absolutely th- right. That they're, is they're the, the backdrop right. here. That's, a, that's an internal problem right. that, they, that they can fix very easily. And once again, <laughs> easily, I say easily, quote-unquote easily, but it means people taking mess, uh, less money in order for the collective to grow. And there's also a concern from these, as you mentioned, from these clubs, big clubs in these other countries that uh, the Premier League money now, they're just going to start dominating the Champions League, that Messi and Ronaldo have been able to stave this off. But as soon as Messi and Ronaldo exit the scene, that the financial advantage the Premier League clubs have, you already started seeing it this season. The, the top six are all still alive in Europe, Arsenal and Chelsea in the Europa League, and then uh, United City, Tottenham and Liverpool are all in the Champions League. And people think this is going to be the way way things are going to go in the future where English clubs are just going to be able to dominate the Champions League. So this is also, this restructuring is also a way to try to fight against that. But hey, again, that that's... that's England has all the leverage. <laughs> and stop yeah. whining. What a bunch of babies those other teams are. As you said, get your house in order first, all right, and figure it out. Who knows? Maybe if you actually had some parity in those leagues and you actually did the things, albeit some things that may hurt those haves versus the have-nots, and you did some things in terms of the rules and the rosters and all that kind of stuff that promoted and, dare I say it, manufactured parity. Where do we get that? Well, that's in MLS every single time. Maybe if you took a page out of MLS, you don't have to take the full page. Maybe you took a little bit of the page and did those things that your individual league would be better and you would have more leverage. And then, who knows, maybe you still want to do those things. But yeah, I mean, this is this is not something that I think, uh, unless... Uh, unless it, the 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 results from a money perspective for some of these teams are just going to be so astro- astronomical and dif- and different, it doesn't make sense for them to do it. And I know we can laugh about the the press releases and stuff like that, but I do think that there is an understanding. And it's not to say that that these these clubs in in, in other countries aren't intrinsic and, and and huge parts of the culture and the history and stuff like that, but. You are getting rid of that. You are now playing in a, I mean, we're not going to get all political and Brexit and all that kind of stuff, but you are opening yourself up 
to something that's very different than what historically you have been. And I left that La Liga there. Barcelona are 11 points clear. Assuming they win it this season, it'll be 14 of the last 15 years that Barca Real Madrid won La Liga. So it's ridiculous. There is an issue in these leagues, I agree. But like you said, they need to figure out how to solve it internally. The solution isn't to break off and go form their own Super League. So I don't think this is going to happen because the Premier League has gotten too big. It's something worth preserving. And as long as the Premier League is standing in its way, we're not going to see the so Super League. So let's just say, for example, that uh, just and this is my last question to you. If the Premier League had a change of heart and they did say, yeah, we'll, we'll have our teams participate in it. Do you think that that is enough to actually make it happen? So do you think this is just all going to be dictated by the EPL either uh, participating or not? Yeah, I think if, okay. if the big clubs in England ever come around, then, we're, then those happening. of us that are against it are in big trouble, then, then it is going to eventually happen. <laughs> oh. If you kill this one golden goose... Who knows? Maybe you can find a bigger, fatter golden goose somewhere <laughs> else. All right, Mossy, way to make a case. Anything else? Nope. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for Ask Alexi. You use that hashtag, Ask Alexi, and uh, you send us your comments, questions, concerns, and who knows? Mossy will read one of them out, as he is about to do right now. What do the people want to know this week, Mossy? At AM Calabresi 12, <laughs> or I should say Dodici. At Alexi Laos, what do you think of the fire rebrand slash Soldier Field rumors? Oh, interesting, interesting, interesting. So we, we need to preface this all by this is just uh, rumors and reporting that the Chicago Fire, one of the, well, not the originals because they, they came a couple years in, but certainly one of the older teams that have been around. They started playing back, back when I was playing back in the 1900s. They were playing downtown at Soldier Field. And then when the whole movement of getting stadiums and soccer-specific stadiums came came to be. They moved out uh, out outside of the city uh, to an area that is um, how should I describe it? It is kind of like the dark side of the moon industrial type of complex air uh, uh, industrial area that is 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 not conducive necessarily to having that what we now consider the experience of MLS teams, especially when it comes to downtown and urban type of, uh, of experience, going and eating and going to the bars and doing all that kind of stuff. But I, I will say this, because we, we can criticize all we want about some of these uh, soccer-specific stadiums in terms of location, location, location. At the time, these, this is what needed to be done, and these were the only options at the time. Certainly, if we had to do it now, they would do it differently. And I, I, we're not telling Chicago anything that they don't know. And the closer and the sooner they get back down to downtown Chicago, the better they are going to be uh, from a business perspective and just a perception perspective. So I am 100% for their move, if this comes to be, of going back to Chicago. Now, if... I'd rather not have them change the brand, but two things. Number one, if that is the price to get a Chicago team in MLS back downtown, then I am certainly willing to pay that. The Chicago Fire, I think, is a, a unique and interesting brand that I don't think needs to go away. However, I will say, if you've ever Googled uh, or Yahoo'd, or I don't even know if the kids Yahoo anymore or anything like that, but just look it up, right? If you, if you go online and you look up Chicago Fire, your entire first page is going to be the television show. Now, that's not a reason to rebrand, okay? But that's, that's, not, that's not a good thing. And in this day and age where MLS teams and owners believe that 
being much more traditional, shall we say. And, you know, the rumors out there about having it just be Chicago Fire SC and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's not going to drive me crazy. I know that there are certain old school originals and, and people that have been around for a while that want no part of any type of rebrand. I think everybody's cool with going down to Chicago. That's great. Getting out of Bridgeview is, is, is the sooner the better. The, the, the actual rebrand, that's a whole other story. And there's going to be a lot of people that will fight it, and rightfully so, and stand up for what they believe in. I, I'm not, I don't want it to happen, but I'm not, it's, this, is not, this is not the hill that I'm willing to die on when it comes to a professional MLS team in Chicago going forward. So let's, let's hope, fingers crossed, that this is all positive. If the, and if the worst thing that we're doing is fighting as to whether they're going to rebrand, then I think we're 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 okay. We're gonna we're gonna be fine regardless of where they uh, of where they come out. So that's my answer to Mr. Calabresi. Dodici. At YL1M. Uh, let me ask this. At Statman Mossy at Alexi Lalas, he included me in this question. All right. Can a good manager pick out eleven or twenty-five players from MLS and win the Premier League? Well, if he included you, then you started off. Uh, no. My sense is the best possible team you could put together from MLS players would would do well would be a good team in the Premier League but I, I don't I wouldn't go as far as say they would win it uh, I mean I guess the way I would look at it is, is how many players in MLS right now do you think could start for Manchester City yeah I mean it's so hard this these compare and contrast it's just, it's so hard and it's all it's not fair and I know you want an answer from me so my answer will be no but not because players aren't talented I just think that Every league has a certain style and a way of play that, that almost transcends the actual players. And, and it's not to say that the best 25 players in MLS couldn't adapt, but I think the way the game that is played in the EPL is very, very different in terms of the speed of play, the physical nature of, of play, and also the fact that you are playing, in a, and I know we talked about the, the, the parity, but the relative parity, you are still playing in a top-heavy league. The MLS, the way the game is played on the field, and the psychology of playing in a league where each and every week you have a chance to win because of that manufactured parity is different. So my, my question to, what's his name again here? Uh, what, what's that At YL1M. YL1M. <laughs> That's a hell of a name there, Moon Unit. My question to you would be, if you took 25 of the best players from the EPL and put them into Major League Soccer, do you think that they would win the league? And my answer to you is no. So I think it is much more to do with what happens on the ground uh, stylistically and the way that teams play. Now, keep in mind, you're also putting together 25 players that don't play together. Um, so... The question that we always get, which is evergreen also, is whoever put insert your best MLS team, uh, whoever it ends up being at a different time, if you put them over in EPL, where would they finish? Would they finish top 10? Would they finish, you know, would they be relegated? All, all that all that kind of stuff. These are fun games to play. My answer to you, though, if you want a simple answer, is no. Is there a player in MLS right now that you think would start for City or Liverpool? Hmm. Yeah, Carlos Vela could start for City. Carlos Vela could start for Liverpool. I mean, Liverpool is more of a run and gun game. So, you know, Liverpool. I don't know. It's it's so like, you know, you're gonna you're you're gonna make fun of. No, you're not gonna make fun of me. Like, you know, no matter what, you're gonna make fun of me. 
Latif Blessing or something like that. Latif Blessing could be tasked to do a job for Liverpool and could start. But you'd be looking at him as an MLS team. If he came in from someplace else and you didn't know his background like, like that, it's not as if these players can't kick the ball or don't understand what soccer, don't understand what soccer is. So, yeah, there are players that could, that could start. Alex over there is licking his chops. He's always looking for little clips he can pull out of you saying something that's going to get people riled up. And I think we have ours for the week. <laughs> yeah, well, listen, tell us. Do you think that there are players uh, out there, and, and uh, use that Ask Alexi hashtag, uh, and you don't have, like when you use the Ask Alexi hashtag. It doesn't necessarily have to be a question. You could also be responding to something that you heard here. But let us know. Do you think that there are players in MLS that could start for who'd you say Liverpool or Man City? Right. Correct. Right, pick some players out there that you think have the ability, either the ability in what they have shown now, or the ability to adjust to what the reality is on the field when it comes to playing for those two teams. Now, keep in mind, they would be going to two of the best teams in the league. So that parity that exists in MLS is very, very different than the parity that exists in, in the EPL. I always said it's, it's a hell of a lot easier to go on the field and to know that, you know, 75% of the time you're going to win simply because you have the best players, you've spent the most money to hedge your bets. It's, it, that's an incredible amount of confidence to be able to go on the field and say, you know what, we're going we're gonna to win this game simply because we are better. It's not about fight. It's not about uh, spirit or t team you know, camaraderie or anything like that. It's just the fact that we have better players. All right, anyway, moving on. What's the next one? At Verna Law, did you have a favorite formation to play in or did different formations not feel different to you because of your position in defense? Uh, if, I had to, if I had to pick one, I would prefer to play in a back three as the center back um, you know you would call it a sweeper at times to be, and I only only because I was as we've said many times I was not fleet of foot uh, and to have but you need this in order to play a, a three five two which which I loved playing you have to have the absolute perfect personnel you know a four four two is is much better when you don't have the great personnel and you can really it's not dumbing it down but it's it's an understanding, and it's, it comes it comes down to spacing, and it doesn't come down necessarily to the physical abilities of the actual players. I loved playing in a back in a back four because of the the tactical part of shifting and spacing, and you know the uh, the coordination between the back four and when you push, when you press, when you when you shift to the other side. That was all that was always fun. But if I if I if I'm just giving you one answer, then it would be a three five two because I I am a romantic. I want to. Once again, I want to push, and having three players in the back exposes you, but it also enables you to push another player forward. And I think the risk-reward for me is, is where I'm going to uh, live on. Anything else? That's it. All right, thank you for your questions. Do use that hashtag, AskAlexi, when you are sending them, uh, and Mossy will read a few of them each and every week as he just did. All right, moving on. The Back Three. Okay, it's time for our back three segments, some big stories, games, moments uh, from the past week. Uh, Mossy, you, uh, you mentioned in the, uh, in the intro that you were working their classic curve. We were watching it from the road. It had all the makings of a classic, and it did not turn out that way, at least from a uh, neutral's perspective. And certainly from a Borussia Dortmund perspective, it did not start off great or finish great for that matter. Yeah, it was 5-0 Bayern, so they leapfrogged Dortmund into first place. They're one point ahead with six rounds left. Just a couple thoughts from me. There were a lot of questions heading into this game about the fitness of certain Dortmund players and what their lineup would look like. 
And I have to say, when the team sheet came out, uh, my head dropped when I saw Zagadou in the center of the fence. I do not know what Lucien Favre sees in this kid. I think he's absolutely terrible. It's so strange to me because one of the linchpins Dortmund's success the first half of the season was the Diallo-Akanji center-back partnership. Now, Diallo has this ability to play left-back as well. He did so at Mainz. But the second half of the season, Favre has been too quick anytime he has a hole at left-back to move Diallo there and put somebody else in the center of the fence. I wouldn't break up that Diallo-Akanji partnership. I'd figure something else out at left-back. If you're jonesing to do that... At least I thought Julian Weigel had emerged as the next best option in the center of the fence. Certainly not Zagadou. To me, he's unplayable in this level of game. He's completely in over his head. He was awful. And to me, that was like half the battle right there, having a player like Zagadou uh, in the center of the fence. Frankly, even if you're going to start that back four, put... Uh, Diallo in the middle and uh, and Zagadou at left back because uh, I don't I mean you you tell me if I'm I, I feel like a, a a solid center back pairing can make up for a shaky left back more than a solid left back can make up for a shaky yeah. center back. You don't want to <laughs> shake when you're in the middle. Okay, <laughs> if you're gonna shake, shake out wide. So I want to hold on. I want to make sure that I got this right. And you used a bunch of uh, technical jargon that I didn't quite understand. You called Zagadou absolutely terrible. Is that what the yes. your assessment of it was? Yes. Uh, Okay, and unplayable, I think, at some point. Yes, Boy. it's like I compared him this weekend. Watching him with the ball, it's like a drunk guy walking on ice. You get this like nervous <laughs> feeling that. Oh my goodness! Well, more importantly, uh, whether whether it's Zagadou or not, I don't think he was the, the the only problem out there. But is this was this this moment that everyone's kind of been waiting for? Is this where Borussia Dortmund conceded and said? We gave it a valiant effort, but it's not going to happen. <laughs> yeah, I think this is so demoralizing that it's hard to see Bayern not winning the league now, which, you know, we don't want to say this at Fox, but it is a bit of an indictment of the league, frankly, that Bayern can go out meekly to Liverpool in the Champions League in the fashion they did. And this is clearly a rebuilding transition season, whatever word you want to use. And they were so mediocre by their standards for much of the first half of the season. And yet when they had to, they flicked the switch. This is now 14 wins in 16, 5-0 over Dortmund first place and now in the driver's seat. And it looks like they're going to win it again. All right, but hold on. I mean, down the stretch here, what do we got? Uh, six games left. Is that where we're at? Uh, uh, yeah, six games. Bayern, uh, they got they got a difficult, uh, what do they call it? Not a run-in. A run-in? Is that what it's yeah, called? Yeah. Or a, a, whatever they call it uh, over there. Uh, Leipzig? And Frankfurt, so playing the third place team and the fourth place team, which isn't absolutely, yeah, they have the slightly tougher schedule, so that there's some hope for Dortmund there. Yeah, but uh, you, you know, you, you, uh, Dortmund's playing Gladbach, and they have Schalke, and everyone should say, "Oh, it should be Schalke," but you know, it's crazy, crazy stuff happens. One last Dortmund note: Desperate um, you know, you talk about how staying healthy is a skill. Yep. I tell you, Paco Alcacer did not play this game. And, you know, we've spun this positively all season saying, wow, look, he has X amount of goals and only blank amount of minutes. But that only blank amount of minutes is an issue. He needs to figure out a way to stay on the field more. There's been too many games this season that he's either missed altogether or hasn't been able to start because of quote-unquote fitness issues. I don't know what the problem is there. He's a young guy. Uh, so, you know, they need to figure something out there, maybe buy another center forward in the summer because plan B always seems to be having to play somebody out of position, Royce, Gutsa, Max Philippe, and none of those are really out-and-out -out center forwards. And so uh, they need to either figure out a way to get Alcacer on the field more or buy another center forward this summer so they have another option. So that that's another thing for that's coming out of this game Dortmund needs to You're going to have about. me go on old, grumpy old man type of rant here about the uh, the – 
the modern day player and you know how coddled they <laughs> Ian are. Ian Joy was not happy because there were reports that Alcacer trained late in the week. So Ian Joy was like, I, I wait just, a minute, then why aren't I, you look, playing? <laughs> I know that I know that technology is advanced. I know that society is advanced and the way that we monitor players, the way that we diagnose, the way that we pre-diagnose, the way that we uh, we try to protect players is is fortified with knowledge that has come with many many years and and new and advanced type of technology. However, I mean the last time that I was a hundred percent, I was ten years old. Okay, and I feel like we have a generation that is constantly waiting to be a hundred percent, and they have a knock. Uh, they don't feel good. They 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 got a bruise here. They got kicked here. Well, I'm not a hundred percent, and so therefore I can. Two things. One, I guess it was because I was never good enough or secure enough in my ability to ever be comfortable saying, well, I'll take this one off because I never thought that that job was ever going to be there. I lived in perpetual fear that somebody was going to take my job because I was not playing, either because I wasn't playing well or because I was injured. What's the baseball reference there? I taught you that once. Oh, wait. Uh, uh, Wally. Pip. <laughs> very good, Pip, very good, very good. The, um, and I'm not going to get the teams wrong. It has to be like a, a Yankee player that substituted or that, 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 that went out and then Babe Ruth or Ty Cobb or Lou somebody. Gehrig. Lou Gehrig. Sorry. <laughs> I know I got that. Was it the Yankees? Yep, yep, yep. All right, so Wally Pip was, you know, feeling good about himself. I'm the big man on campus. I'm a Yankee. I'm making money. Uh, everybody loves me. Eh, I'm not quite feeling good. Uh, I'm, I'm going to take this game off. He took the game off and Hank, who was it? Lou Gehrig. Lou Gehrig. I got to keep getting around. And Lou Gehrig said, well, here's my opportunity. He came in and we never heard from Wally Pip again, right? So yeah, I mean, thank you for, for that, that education. Ah, ah, in the recesses of my mind, that Wally Pip came, uh, came through. But that, but that is it. And look, you, you, you sound, because you know, I talk to these coaches each and every week. And, I, and they're, they're of my generation. And they, you know, they'll talk about rotating squads. And they'll talk about, well, you know, our, our data tells, me, uh, tells us that he, he, we're, we're running him too hot. And we got we to gotta pull back. We, God, all I wanted to do was play games. I never wanted to train. All I wanted to do was play every single game and every single minute. And there had to be protruding bone to get me off the field. And I know I sound like an old guy, so maybe I am an old guy, but uh, lamenting the, the younger generation and how soft they are. But guess what? That's kind of how human beings work. We, we always look at that younger generation as spoiled and, and uh, being given so much more and not appreciative of what they have and, and phoning it in. All right, and next generation will do the same thing to the next generation. Mossy, anything else there? No. So the, uh, moving on, the, the second half of our Big Fox doubleheader on Saturday was also a rout. You were in D.C. for this one, Audi Field. You actually covered this game with Rob Stone from the D.C. supporters section. Yeah. LAFC, 4-0 winners over D.C. United. Rossi got a hat trick. Vela got the other one. First off, how was it in the supporters section? And then second question, are LAFC just head and shoulders the best team in the league this season? Okay, so first, first question, uh, and for those that didn't, didn't watch, yes, we were in D.C. at uh, Audi Field. And it was it was wonderful in that we were given the privilege um, and permission to actually broadcast from the supporters section. And I want to thank uh, publicly the supporters, uh, the uh, the Screaming Eagles uh, from the supporters group for DC United, uh, Barra Brava, District Ultras. Uh, they were all wonderful. We actually sat in the middle of Screaming Eagles. We went to their pregame party. We came in on a boat because you can actually take a boat uh, to this new stadium, uh, and we. We had a wonderful time uh, hanging with them before the game and then during the game. Now, the result on the field from their perspective was horrible, but 
they brought it off the field uh, and their passion and their uh, and their voice and their support never wavered throughout the whole thing. And look, we were we were coming to them and they gave us permission to do this. And the at times the ownership that supporters groups have is wonderful. At times the entitlement <laughs> that that uh, that they have can be frustrating and difficult to work with. Th- th- there was anything but that. They recognized that this was an opportunity for them to promote themselves, to promote their brand, to promote the experience. And that's really what we wanted to do. And we've tried to, you know, we've tried to do some different things here uh, and give the MLS viewer, when they are tuning in to watch an MLS game, a, a, an idea of what's going to happen. Because it's more than the actual 90 minutes of play when you're watching uh, and watching the game. It is a group. It is a community. Is it a, it is a culture. And to be able to bring that, thank you very much for allowing us to do that. And I will say that there are those like the Screaming Eagles uh, and all the supporters groups at D.C. and D.C. United as an organization that were incredibly accommodating and they recognized what we wanted to do. There are others that we're trying to work with. And if you're listening right now, uh, we are not there to co-opt your brand. We are not there to capitalize in the, in the financial perspective uh, or any other perspective for that matter, other than to capitalize on this incredible thing that is happening and to bring it and to, um, to export it out so people understand and have a better opportunity to see what's going on. So that's really where we're, that's really where we're coming from. And I get, I get there's people that are reticent and once again, they, you know, they feel like we are coming into their thing and, and as I said, co-opting their culture and something that they want to have a separation from the man and a separation from the commercial part, uh, uh, commercial part of the game. But we were doing it because we just wanted to highlight some things of what's going on and the uh, the lifestyle, and it is a, a a lifestyle choice, and it's not easy. And I was saying on the air the other day, it's not easy to be an MLS fan, and and I'm saying MLS here, but it it's it, it can it, it can apply to an American soccer fan. It's not it's not it's not always easy, but it is it is a choice, and that's where that. That's where that ownership comes from. And at times that's where, you know, the difficulties can come and the challenges. And it's, and it's good. I'd rather have that than them not caring at all. They want to make sure that if and when they do this, that they are putting their best foot forward and they are being shown in the light that they want. And I'm here to tell you that that's what we want to do. And I want to thank DC United and all the supporters groups for allowing us to, uh, allowing us to do that. And I hope more people out there when it comes to the supporters groups of MLS uh, recognize that this is what we're trying to do and allow us the privilege and ultimately the pleasure of being involved with them. So that, that was fun off the field. LAFC, far, far and away the best uh, team right now in Major League Soccer. Bob Bradley is running away with coach of the year. Uh, the consistency that they have, uh, we, were, we were looking at it. I think there's one change in terms of uh, players that weren't with Bob Bradley and LAFC last year. And that was a real effort to maintain an understanding of how they want to play, the culture that they have worked so hard to build, and having it translate into the second year. And I think that that's translated well, phenomenally well. Right now, they also have the MVP 
uh, unless something drastic happens. I know it's still a little early days, but Carlos Vela is feeling it. We talk about it time and time again. He gets that ball on the right-hand side. He's got that left foot. He'll cut in. I know it. You know it. Everybody in the stadium knows it. Everybody at home knows it. This is what he's going to do, and you can't stop it. And these these left-footed players, I was talking to uh, Stu Holden or whoever I was talking to the other day, and these left-footed players that just constantly, you know what they want to do, and it's guys like Precky, guys like Iron Robin, these guys that come in from the right-hand side, and you know what they want to do. And as I said, everybody knows what they want to do, and it's just so difficult to defend because if you go to block that shot that's going to the far post, they will cut you back. And the left foot, it's just... You should say, well, it's easy. You just mirror it. But it's not easy. They're, they are freaks of nature, these left-footed players. <laughs> and it's so difficult to defend against. And that cut on the left foot just seems to, it probably has something psychological. It just seems to have such more of a dramatic effect. And Bob Bradley's gotten some crap for the comparisons to Messi. And I'm, I'm, look, Bob and I at times disagree on different things, and we have a, an incredible history. But ultimately... He's a great coach, and I will defend him on this in that, look, I know Messi's one of the greatest, if not the greatest player ever to play the game, but Carlos Vela, and Bob isn't saying that he is Messi, but what he's saying is the ability for Messi to impact a game on a continual basis with what he does, with that left foot of his, with his dribbling ability, with his creativity, that's something that someone like Carlos Vela can emulate. That's something that Carlos Vela can aspire to be, and that's a good thing. That's not sacrilege to talk about Carlos Vela and Leon Messi in the same in the same breath. I, I, I at least I don't I don't think it is. And I think one of the things that Bob does very very well is constantly challenge players and do put them up to say who do you want to play like? Who do you want to be like? And sometimes they're so far off that players don't do that. But you need someone to challenge you and say, all right, well, in that moment, this is what that player who you have told me how uh, you admire, that's what that player would do. And I think Bob's done a really good job. And obviously it's paying off dividends in terms of the way that Carlos Vela is playing right now. Bob Bradley also had a lot to say about the U.S. soccer media. Yeah, whatever. That's, all a bunch that's, that's of people Bob. Big that, soccer threads. That's and, Bob. <laughs> Bob, Bob <laughs> but, I love Bob. You know, Bob has his uh, has his opinions. I certainly have my opinions. Sometimes the, they jibe. Sometimes uh, a lot of times, uh, a lot of times they don't. Especially when it comes to uh, to the media. But don't think for a second. While Bob may uh, downplay and criticize and uh, ignore or supposedly ignore or, or throw away what the media says. Don't think for a second that he doesn't read and see every single thing out there. So I know you're listening, Bob. All right. I love you. I love you, my friend. And I love the fact that you are listening out there. And we all have our different opinions. You know, I, I choose to believe that whether somebody played at a high level or not, there is validity um, and substance and that I can learn from those people as much so as anybody that ever played the game uh, at a high level. I choose to believe that just because somebody hasn't traveled the world in the way that Bob Bradley has or something like that doesn't mean that their opinion on the game lacks validity uh, or that I should uh, scoff at it simply because it uh, that person didn't follow the same path. And it does, also doesn't mean that I don't put value in multiple experiences and different types of experiences in the way that Bob Bradley uh, has traveled the world. But I believe when I sit down, I sit down at a bar with somebody or anything like that, and a lot of times people will say, well, you played, so you tell me, or you played, so you should know. No, 
You watch the game. Masi, you watch the game. I can learn something from everybody. And by the way, there's people I know that haven't even come close to playing at the level that I or somebody else have that are so much more intuitive and so much more interesting and intelligent in the way that they talk about the game. By the way, there's certainly people that, that aren't, but I can also find some players that have played at incredibly high levels that don't know what the hell they're talking about. <laughs> Uh, All right. Anything else? Well, our producer, Alex Dad, really wants us to hit on this point, so we'll okay. do it quickly to, to <laughs> indulge him. All right, him. this is for Alex uh, You there. mentioned Vela as the MVP frontrunner in MLS. Right. Uh, spinning it forward to this summer, we have the Gold Cup. Yes. Uh, now, Vela missed these last friendlies under somewhat odd circumstances, but assuming he's back in the fold come this summer, Mexico are going to be a handful because you have him firing in all cylinders. You have Raul Jimenez, who's having a terrific season for Wolves. They just signed him permanently, scored this past weekend in the FA Cup semis against Watford uh, had an interesting celebration with the mask and everything, and then his team ended up losing, so that kind of backfired. But you've got obviously Irving Lozano doing what he's doing in Europe, even Chicharito you could still throw into this mix. So, uh, what, what's your outlook there? I mean, uh, Greg Berhalter is going to have his hands full. I was huh? just about to say, this is going to be a really interesting uh, come to Jesus type of moment for Greg Berhalter this summer. It's all fine and well, these, these early games. And I think he's, as I said, I gave him a B for what he has done. I think he's been really, really good in laying out how he wants to play. But at a certain point, the whistle is going to blow and they're going to be real games against real teams that mean something and the result is what's going to be the most important and when you talk about Mexico this is a loaded team now Carlos Vela is interesting because of his strange history when it comes to playing for Mexico and I, I think it's going to be hard for Tata not to not to look to him and and he was great last last summer uh, with Mexico and he's certainly started off the year on fire and I think Tata Martino is going to have to to look to Carlos Vela to to lead this team but I'm I'm real excited to see what this Mexico team looks like. If there is a not a renewed energy, but if they look if they look different, and whether it's different because Tata Mart- uh, Martino is doing something different, or whether it's different because he's putting more uh, responsibility on someone like Carlos Vela, or whether Jimenez, who has been around for a while but now obviously is scoring goals, takes over the mantle for Chicharito, and uh, that type of changing the guard uh, happens. All of these different things. But it's going to come down to as it usually does. Your two favorites for winning the Gold Cup this summer are the United States, notwithstanding what happened uh, with, the, with the World Cup, are still the United States and Mexico. And right now, the way Mexico looks on paper, if I had to put all of my money on it, I'd put it on Mexico. And that's, that's not that, that Greg Berhalter isn't going to do a good job, but I think it's a longer type of process and build for Greg Berhalter than it is from when it comes to Mexico. Okay, we'll Anything end on else? this. No, um, we'll end on this. The uh, Champions League quarterfinals got underway this week. Uh, Tuesday, it's uh, Tottenham hosting Manchester City at their new stadium. Liverpool welcome Porto to Anfield. Then Wednesday, uh, Manchester United, Barcelona at Old Trafford. And Ajax face Juventus in Amsterdam. Big picture before we zero in on a couple of these ties. The four best teams in Europe uh, this season, I think, pretty clearly are City, Liverpool, Juve, and Barcelona. They were kept apart. So the question becomes, do they all advance and set up this sort of dream semifinal, or do any of them get picked off in this round? Uh, I think they all advance, but the best chance for me would be Tottenham, Manchester City. Mm. I just think there's something weird about facing a team from the same country. City lost to Liverpool in this round last year. Uh, Chelsea famously eliminated the Arsenal Invincibles in the quarterfinals in 2004. So uh, to me, that's the best chance, but you don't even think there's much of a chance there, right? No, I mean, I, I, if I had to 
uh, yeah, if I have to pick them, it's the it's as you said, the usual suspects going through. Now the their uh, the Spurs game this week is at their new stadium. Correct. Boy, never has so much been made of a new stadium by a team. <laughs> it's like it's like they've never seen you know bottom feeding beer fillers or whatever <laughs> like that they just, or they've never seen a new stadium over there boy oh boy they're getting very very excited about uh, about soccer specific stadiums and but ultimately we'll see if this if it if it changes uh, their play i don't think that spurs have enough ultimately to beat city even though there is a familiarity and i don't think there's a fear when it comes to spur and and and, and an understanding of how they're going to play i just don't think that they uh, they have enough. And let me just say i've i've had an issue like everybody else with turner's coverage but even a broken clock is right twice a day uh they're putting tottenham man city on tnt and relegating liverpool porto to whatever Bleacher. and Bleacher. yeah Bleacher. and and liverpool fans were all upset about that i'm sorry tottenham man city is the better game come on uh, you know so liverpool, liverpool fans porto upset? yes that's reason in and of itself to put it uh, <laughs> liverpool porto is the least <laughs> compelling tie of the four precisely because i don't give porto much of a chance i think this is a layup for liverpool to get to the next round yeah. only point of interest for me is oh, porto. Yeah, porto no yeah porto have a lot of brazilian players it'll be chiquinho leading the front line otavio Militão, Felipe, Telly's across that back line. So I'll have my eye on those guys. But, uh, you know, Iker Casillas in goal. But but no, I mean, I'm sorry. The, that From a neutral's perspective, Tottenham City is the yeah. more compelling unit. I, don't, I do not want to watch Liverpool Porto. Uh, then very quickly, uh, Wednesday, uh, Dembele still iffy for Barcelona. Coutinho did play well against Atletico this past weekend, and, and Malcolm looked great coming on. So I think Valverde feels pretty good about his other options, so I don't think he's going to force Dembele if he's not 100% fit. He certainly won't start, and I'm not even sure he'll be on the bench, so we'll keep it on. That's a great history in that tie. Barcelona have beaten United in two Champions League finals in 09 and 11, but they've never won at Old Trafford. There's a famous game that everybody always talks about in 1984 in the Cup Winners' Cup where uh, Maradona-led Barcelona team went in there and Brian Robson orchestrated this 3-0 United victory, so that, that's been replayed over and over again in the last week. And then uh, Ajax-Juventus, Ronaldo is fit. It looks like he'll be able to play. Remember, he got hurt for yep. Portugal on international duty. But I do want to hit on this story. Juve have this emerging young star, this striker, Moise Ken. Last week, he was, uh, unfortunately, in the news for the wrong reason. So uh, Juve played a game away to Cagliari. Mm -hmm. uh, he was racially abused, which sadly is nothing new. But what gave this story a different dimension was that uh, he was getting abused, he scored, he stared down the fans that were abusing him, so they abused him some more. And after the game, his own teammate, Leonardo Bonucci, actually said that there was equal blame to go around, that it was 50-50. The fans shouldn't have been racially abusing him, but he also shouldn't have provoked the fans. Literally, like, one of the stupidest things I've ever heard come out of a human being's mouth. So there was widespread condemnation. Bonucci was getting crushed. He's had to come out, give multiple apologies, walk it back. Uh, they've since trained, all right? They played a game this weekend. They beat AC Milan. Keen actually, Ken, I'm sorry, actually scored. So it seems like they've moved on from this incident, but I mean, what did you make of this? And do you think it's, it's an issue going forward? No, no, it's, it's, it has been an issue. It is an issue. And unfortunately, it's going to continue to be an issue until FIFA, until UEFA, until the leagues really do something about it. And, you know, that's docking points. That's uh, that's banning players. That's uh, banning people from the stadium. And in this day and age, we're able to see absolutely everything. They, they can catch you picking your nose, but they can't catch you when you're, uh, you know, doing despicable things. And it's, and, and as far as inciting it, look, there are, there are times where it is appropriate to tell somebody, look, you made a, a, a bad situation worse by the things that you did, okay? But this is not that type of situation. I don't care if you go and you flip off the fans and you moon them uh, and you curse them from the field, 
okay? That does not give somebody the right then to turn around and to racially, uh, racially abuse you. And so I don't, I don't buy that for one second. And you know, this, this, this notion that the antics of a player on the field therefore give people the right to do something is is ridiculous or on you know you can't what was the thing that and i'm not equating these two things the other day but the, the baseball thing the other day the guy hit the ball out of the park and flipped his bat and doing all this stuff everybody's everybody's outraged and offended at uh at at a little thing at a little thing like that and they're throwing at people and they're doing all that kind of stuff this is so much more egregious and just absolutely uh absolutely ridiculous and yet as you said this is something that has existed and is going to continue to exist and you have to you have to root people out individually and you have to obviously prove that what they did actually happened but with the technology that we have today you can you can figure that out and you have to make examples of people and you have to make examples of groups and you have to make examples of teams. And at times, you're going to have to have the teams ultimately pay the price because sometimes it's just such masses and it's very difficult to control and single out people within in masses, but you can, you can do it. So, but I don't know if they're willing to do that. And once again, to go back to that, that golden goose, you don't, people are unfortunately, leagues and associations, and leadership are reticent about wanting to do things that are going to kill the bottom line. Not kill it, but hurt the bottom line. And this conversation went a weird direction. Uh, a lot of people think that teams should walk off the field if their players are getting racially abused, even if it means having to forfeit the match. So then I saw it was put on Twitter to Liverpool fans. If it came down to the last game of the season, and if you win, you're Premier League champions, and Sadio Mane is getting racially abused, let's say, would you support Liverpool walking off the field, forfeiting that match, and handing the title to City that way? And I don't know, that's trying to put Liverpool fans in a weird sort of ethical box. Like, it shouldn't come to that. The, the, the team with the aggrieved person shouldn't have to forfeit games because UEFA can't get their act together and actually like clean up this and, nonsense. And look, there are, <laughs> there are laws and there are rules and regulations when it comes to a referee who is out there to be the arbiter and make sure that they figure out. And if they have seen this, if there is a possibility of this, you know, they're there to stop the game. They're there to say, no, this isn't, this, this isn't happening. And oftentimes, once again, it's, it, it seems easy at times when we're sitting on the couch here and we're sitting and watching the, the game and when you're in the moment, and I understand that, but you need people with courage. You need people to stand up in those moments and to lead and when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the referee. And then if and when those, th those moments happen, then you need people to be courageous and to do the right thing, uh, even if that right thing may be detrimental to the business, either the business of the team uh, or the business of the league or the business of sports in in a, in a certain reason. And unfortunately, there's not enough times uh, where that right thing is done. And just to end on a positive note, I mean, he's a fantastic young player. He's going to be a big star for Italy and Juventus. Uh, so it's great to see he's, he can't stop scoring. He's even, like I said, uh, this weekend against AC Milan scored again. So uh, keep an eye on him in this tie against Ajax. All right, before we wrap it up here, though, uh, the, the potential for Man City still exists to win this historic quadruple, Correct. right? If that were to happen, that's a big old if, but let's just say that that happened. Would they go down as the greatest team ever in your book? 
And to remind people what the quadruple would be for them. So it would be winning the League Cup, which they already have, the FA Cup, which are in the final now. They'll face uh, Watford. And then the Premier League, which they're in this neck-and-neck race with Liverpool. And obviously the Champions League. I think, yeah, you'd have to say that. Now, listen, uh, the one argument against them is they've had a lot of easy draws here in these various competitions. But I'm presuming that to win the Champions League, they're going to have to At some point, uh, defeat right. a couple of big boys. So that'll kind of validate this whole thing. And so, yeah, at that point, I mean, definitely in the conversation. I mean, I mean you, you, would ha- you can make the argument. I know it's arguable, but best team ever with the best coach ever. And yet, I don't think any player on that team you would include in your best players ever type of thing, right? Yeah, no. It's strange. All right, well, we've come to the uh, end of uh, the back three, which means we've come to the end of the show, which means we've come to my one big thing uh, from today's podcast, and it goes back to the 99ers. And as someone who uh, has been around for a long time, as someone who is incredibly proud of uh, being a part of this interesting and growing uh, and passionate and knowledgeable American soccer culture, and unique American soccer culture, and at times, I, I am incredibly fortunate uh, and humbled at times to have people come up and tell me what my generation and things that we did meant, meant to them. And that's, that's all fine and well. But I have heroes too. And they run the gamut when it comes to sports and music and entertainment and all that kind of stuff. But what, what this group of women did uh, in 1999 to change the sport that I love in the country that I love. Uh, it is incredibly, f- I'm incredibly fortunate to be able to work with many of them I have over the years and to know many of them. And you know, I was just playing in a game with them last week. Julie Foudy, I, I worked with for years at ESPN and still you know, tonight I'm gonna be at a, a fundraiser with her. Uh, I just have so much respect for not just the players that they were and not just the results that they got, but the, the women that they are and the women that they have become, and their continued influence when it comes to the game, and their continued influence on multiple generations now. And it's it's really is amazing to see, you know, to walk with a Mia or to walk with a Julia or a Brandy or something like that, and to see not just girls, because now it's multiple generations, but also to see young and, and middle-aged women uh, come up and explain and not just women, women and men, but but certainly women uh, of a certain generation come up and to see and to hear them explain how important they were in terms of their growth as soccer people, but as, as, as young women and the pride that they felt and the self-worth that they felt and the courage that they gave them and the confidence that they gave them to do anything. And I'm not even talking about kicking a ball. And ultimately, if you are in the fortunate position and you are able to do that, man, oh man, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. And uh, I I continue to be in awe uh, and I continue to be amazed and they continue to be uh, my heroes. And that it's been 20 years is pretty amazing because it seems like yesterday. But this group and this moment, if you are a part of the American soccer culture, it deserves to be celebrated, and we should celebrate it all year. And I know we're going to celebrate it in the context of another Women's World Cup uh, this summer. And uh, everything that they have done since then, as I said in the State of the Union, uh, has in certain ways impacted and positively informed the way that 
women's soccer players, uh, soccer players in general, uh, men and women, uh, and athletes go about their business. And so thank you from the bottom of my heart uh, for everything that you as the 99ers did, uh, uh, have done, and I know will continue to do. And you are true American treasures and uh, you should be treated as such. Uh, Okay, Mossy, anything before we go? Nope. All right, we will see you again next week. We thank you so much for tuning in to the State of the Union podcast and making this uh, what it is. Uh, Let us know uh, how you're feeling. Use that hashtag, Ask Alexia, on all the different platforms out there that we have and uh, we will ask your answer hopefully answer some of those questions that you have but even if you just want to call and yet or uh, not call but uh, tweet or text or do all that kind of stuff and uh, and write us about what we're doing right and wrong uh, let us know and we will see you again next week until then size the day <laughs>